Well, this morning uh, I want to uh, take another diversion from our study in the book of Acts and uh, give uh, my annual election sermon just dealing with what's about to happen on Tuesday. And if you're not uh, aware of what's going to happen on Tuesday, I don't know what planet you've been on, but it's, uh, it's quite an exciting time. Uh, certainly a lot has been going on. And I'd like to uh, invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 33, and just as a uh, launching place for our uh, discussion this morning, our time of study or observation, all that mixed together, I'd like to read Psalm 33, verse 12. Psalm 33, verse 12, and obviously we're going to be speaking uh, about political parties and the Bible. Uh, most, I'm sure most everyone has probably made up their mind who they're going to vote for. I'm certainly not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm going to share with you a lot of my thoughts, my convictions. It doesn't represent the church. The church really doesn't, we don't publish any uh, stand on these types of issues, but these are my convictions and uh, you can vote as, as the Lord leads you. But uh, there's a lot to consider, particularly as those who name the name of Christ. There is a lot to consider from the Scriptures on, uh, on how we should cast our vote. So in Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. I'm quite aware that the context of Psalm 33 is not talking about America. It's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. And it's talking about God choosing the nation of Israel for being His own special covenant people under this, uh, this uh, uh, text of Scripture. But as Americans, we can certainly apply the principle here because we are somewhat unique in that our country was founded on a Judeo-Christian principle. Many of our founding fathers did know the Lord Jesus. Certainly some did not. But there was a Christian worldview that basically provided a, an invisible foundation, if you will, for, for our country. And we have experienced the blessings of the Lord God. So in many ways, even though this verse does not address America in particular, we can identify with the principle of it. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now obviously for a long, long time, we have been drifting far, far away from this so that we're, we're no longer even possessing a Christian or biblical worldview as a country. But certainly as people who love Christ, who love the Word of God, this is still our guide and our, our uh, standard for all things, including politics and government and everything else. So why should Christians be engaged in some level of, of politics? Well, there are many, many reasons in my mind. Certainly Christ tells us to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that's a command. And our Caesar, which is primarily the, the, the document of the Constitution, puts the responsibility on the people 
to not only elect, but to oversee those who represent us in government. The Constitution says, we the people. Now, we as Christians are citizens of this country. We have a dual citizenship. Our highest is our citizenship in heaven, but we're also citizens of this nation that we live in. And our Caesar says we the people need to be engaged in both electing and overseeing those who represent us in government. So we need to be involved. We need to be aware. We need to be informed. The Lord also teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately, that coming kingdom is at the second coming, but there is a spiritual kingdom that is coming as well. It's here. It's growing. And we're to have a heart to want to see that kingdom come in power through the gospel of Jesus Christ and spread so that God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the heart of God's people. So this is another reason why we should be involved. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that should be within the heart and soul to see the gospel spread, to see more and more people come under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ and live according to the righteousness of the Word of God. That should be our heart. And Christ wants us to pray that, to keep it on the front of our minds, that this is something that we desire and long for. We're also to pray for those in authority. How can you pray for what you don't know what's going on? So we need to be informed and stay involved. And of course, the Scriptures have a lot to say about government. A few of those we'll look at together this morning. Now what I want to do is uh, I want to spend some time in comparing the Republican and the Democrat Party platforms. Say, well, why go through that? Well, a lot of people that I've heard about are hesitant to vote for Donald Trump, for example, because of his personality. Uh, he's, uh, he's kind of rough as a cob in areas. He's crude. He's vulgar at times. And people just don't like his, his personality, so they struggle with casting a vote for this, for this man. Al Mohler, for example, uh, said that he did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. He's definitely voting for him in 2020, but he didn't vote for him in 2016 primarily because of his personal issues. But I think when it comes to casting a vote, there's far more than a candidate's personality. As important as that is, we want our candidates to be people of character, certainly. But when that is lacking, and in this case, it's lacking on both sides in many ways, uh, you look at other aspects. You look at accomplishments. You look at what they stand for. You look at what they've done. You look at, at what their parties stand for. And if you just look at the difference between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, according to their platforms, there's a, a huge difference in what they stand for that Christians need to be aware of. The uh, comparison that I'm going to primarily be relying on comes from the Family Research Council that have done a lot of work on this. So I'm borrowing from their website. And I can also say that as you look at the difference between the platforms, 
not all individual candidates necessarily align with all the details in the platforms. But nevertheless, uh, these are important because if someone says they're a Republican, they should generally be in line with their platform. Someone says they're a Democrat, they're generally going to be in line with their platform as well. And Christians, when we cast a vote, need to be aware of what these two parties stand for. Now, we have a lot of problems that there's only two parties. Many people wish there was another party, but there really isn't a viable third party yet. So we're kind of stuck between these two primary candidates for becoming elected to the various offices, including the White House. So let's uh, kind of begin to walk through this. And uh, let me get my little thing working. Uh, yes. Okay, so we're going to walk through the two platforms on where they stand on issues that are biblically relevant to believers. So the first one is life and abortion. So you look at the Republican Party, we assert the sanctity of human life and affirm that the unborn child is a fundamental right to life which cannot be infringed. We'll appoint judges who will support sanctity of life at all stages opposes use of public funds to perform or promote abortion or to fund organizations like Planned Parenthood. That's pretty good. General, that's a very strong pro-life position which would be in line with Scripture. What do the Democrat Party platforms say? Well, they're committed to protecting and advancing reproductive health rights and justice so that every woman should be able to access high-quality reproductive health care services including safe and legal abortion. We will restore fund, federal funding for Planned Parenthood. So they're very much committed to abortion pro-death party. So it's quite interesting that when you look at these two parties from a biblical perspective, it's quite clear which party favors life and which party favors death. The Democrat Party supports a course of health and human services contraceptive mandate against faith-based groups like Little Sisters of the Poor. You're probably familiar with that. Uh, they lost their case. The Democrats did. But if Biden gets elected, he's going to pursue this again. The Democrat Party supports repealing the Hyde Amendment to allow government to fund abortion. The Democrat Party supports abortion any time, even up to the time of birth, some even after birth. The Senate Republican Conference offered the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. That would be if, if a baby, if you do abortion and, you, and they botch the abortion and the baby's still alive when it's born, then you need, to, you need to treat it as life. You need to try to protect it and help it to survive. Every... Democrat voted against that particular bill. Every one of them. So you can see where that party stands on even a botched abortion and a baby that was intended to be aborted is born alive, then basically they don't want to do anything to protect the life, even after it's born. Quite sad indeed. Well, what does the Scripture say? Again, I'm just going to quickly run through a bunch of these. In Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. I mean, this is obviously, we're, we're all going to be in agreement on this. 
Why? Because in Genesis 1, we're all created in God's image. That little baby is being is created in God's image. It has God's image inside the womb. And it is murder to kill that baby. Psalm 139 says, You were formed in, in you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. This is God's hands doing that. So man needs to keep his hands out of that holy space. Right? Luke 1.15, John the Baptist, even when he was in the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. And he leaped with joy in his mother's womb. It's, it's a human being inside of there so that you cannot kill the baby. So one party's will defend the baby, the other party will want to kill the baby. Let's look at another issue. How about marriage, family, and the LGBTQ plus position? The Republican platform, the words LGBTQ, gay, or homosexual are not even mentioned in the platform. Foremost among these uh, those institutions is the American family. It is a foundation of civil society and the cornerstone of the family is natural marriage, the union of one man and one woman. The data and the facts lead to an inescapable conclusion. Every child deserves a married mom and dad. That's in the Republican platform. How about the Democrat? will advance the ability of all persons to live with dignity, security, and respect regardless of who they are or who they love promotes the Globe Act, which is uh, trying for America to be involved in promoting the LGBTQ plus values worldwide. That would be an American goal to do that. That's the Globe Act. Biden supports the right of eight-year-old to change gender. The health care should pay for gender change, for surgery, hormone treatments. Government should pay for all of that. And both Biden and Harris have performed gay marriages services. So where does the Democrat Party stand on these issues? Quite clear, isn't it? The Republican stands for biblical marriage. The Democrat Party stands for any kind of marriage. So again, that's uh, quite clear. Uh, the Scriptures again, Genesis 2.24 God created Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage between one man, one male, one female. It's a marriage of Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, as you've probably heard people reference. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says that if a man lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Romans 1, 26 and 27 said that God gave them over so that women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men did the same thing. They abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And this is a part of God's judgment so that any society that sees a... a the propagation of the homosexual lifestyle is already under the judgment of God. It's not that we're going to be judged. We are judged because of this lifestyle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the effeminate 
and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the Republican Party obviously is putting forth biblical marriage. The Democrat Party is certainly favoring marriage of any kind, gay marriage for any kind of marriage. And so you see which one is going to line up with Scripture and which one doesn't. Seems to be quite clear. Well, let's look at another issue. How about with education? The Republican platform says support school choice of all parent, for all parents. Parents are the child's first and foremost educators. Now, now that's key. Parents are the first and foremost educators of their children and have a primary responsibility for the education of their children. The Republican platform supports homeschooling, teaching the Bible as an elective, support such sexual risk avoidance education with abstinence until marriage as a standard. So again, it at least represents the biblical truth that parents have the responsibility to educate their children. What does the Democrat Party say? Well, they believe that it is the government's responsibility to ensure that every child everywhere is able to receive a world-class education. World-class, thank globalist education. United Nations, Common Core, which reflects United Nations values, the Marxist communist values of the United Nations. They support the LGBTQ plus sex education in schools. They oppose school choice of any or any vouchers going to private school and they don't mention homeschooling at all in the in the Democratic Party platform. So again, the, the Republican platform looks good. It's upholding parental responsibility. The Democratic platform says, no, this is a government's responsibility. Well, again, what does the Scripture say? It's the parent's responsibility. Fathers, do not provoke your children to uh, anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the responsibility of fathers to oversee that. Deuteronomy 6-7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And obviously this is imparting biblical truths to your children is what that's primarily focusing on. But still it's a responsibility for spiritual values, moral values to come from the parents. Proverbs 1-8, hear my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Again, it's the parents have that responsibility, not the government. So the party supports parents. The other one wants to say, no, it's the government's responsibility to educate your children. And because the government has controlled so much of that education for many, many decades, uh, a lot of the problems we're having today is a direct result of that. Not only have we turned away from the Lord in our households, but we've also given up the responsibility to educate our children to the government and they've been continually just pressing into their minds all the worldly values which uh, we would oppose on many different levels. So can another issue, how about the Second Amendment? The Republican Party says we uphold the right of individuals to keep and bear arms. A natural, inalienable right that predates the Constitution and is secured by the Second Amendment. 
lawful gun ownership enables Americans to exercise their God-given right of self-defense, supports the repeal of bad legislation that restricts gun rights. Pages 12 and 13. So that's from the Republican platform. How about the Democrats? Their platform says they will enact universal background checks and online sales of guns and ammunition, ban the manufacture and sale of assault weapons. Democrats believe that gun companies should be held responsible for their products and will prioritize repealing the law that shields gun manufacturers from civil liability. And they will continue to chip away at our Second Amendment rights. So one says we have the Second Amendment. We want to keep it. The other says we want to do away with it. What does the Bible say? Well, Exodus 22 certainly is the first passage that primarily speaks of the right of self-defense for believers. Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3 speaks of a thief that breaks into your house at night and if you strike him and kill him, you're guiltless. Because he, he snuck into your house at night, you don't know if he's coming to harm you or just to steal something. So if you kill that thief, well then there's no blood guiltiness on your part. If someone breaks in during the day, a thief, they're only talking about a thief in that passage, and you kill him, then, then you're wrong because the penalty for stealing or thievery is not death, it's restitution. You pay back four times or five times what you stole. It's not death. If you kill the guy during the daytime, well then, that's wrong. But it's only in the context of stealing things. Now, if someone is coming to threaten you or to harm you or to kill you, then you have the right of self-defense to use lethal force in that matter, according to the Scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 4, you remember when Nehemiah and the people were coming back to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah. And all the pagans around there didn't like them rebuilding the, the, the wall, so they began to gang up and threaten the Jews who had come back into the land and actually formed plots to go in and kill them for rebuilding their own wall in Jerusalem. And so if you read that passage, you find that the citizens, not soldiers, but just the common citizens, had the right to protect themselves with swords and spears and bows. And those were deadly weapons. And they were also the modern day version or the ancient version of what we would call today an assault weapon because it's exactly what the military of that day and age would have used. They would have used swords and spears and bows. So the citizens had access to the very same weapons that the armies did back in that day and could use them to protect themselves. They were to defend themselves against unlawful racist murder because all those people were trying to come in and kill them because they were Jews and they were rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah exhorts them and says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. And then he also told them to carry their weapons with them. So this is not even concealed carry. This is open carry. So they were able to actually... And those who were working on the wall would actually carry an implement of work in one hand and then they'd carry their weapon in the other hand. So obviously they had the right to defend themselves. In Esther 8 and 9, when uh, the decree went out for all of the 
people in the Persian Empire to kill the Jews. Remember Haman and that decree that he got the king to, to issue. And then eventually, Esther came forward and they, you're familiar with the whole story. And then they issued a counter decree where the Jews living in the Persian Empire were given the right to protect their lives by using lethal force against those who would attack them. And all of this is under the, the blessing and guidance of God. So you certainly have the right to self-defense. Now the only issue that comes up that we have to qualify all of this is if someone comes and attacks me specifically for my faith in Jesus Christ, then, you know, that's when we, I would say, you, you flee or you try to avoid it or you suffer for the name of Christ. If it's specifically coming for the name of Christ, we don't take up guns and start a, a war. The gospel, the kingdom of Christ is never advanced by the, by the arms of the flesh. It's advanced by the Spirit of God, not the, the Spirit of, uh, or the sword of the, of the world. But other than that, we have the right to uh, self-defense. So biblically, the Republican Party affirms the Second Amendment to our Constitution. The Democratic Party wants to do away with it. And obviously, Beto O'Rourke is Biden's pick for gun control. And he says, yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47s. So, I mean, they're, they're coming after our guns. If they get elected, we can uh, kiss our Second Amendment uh, goodbye. How about uh, climate change and, and the environment and all those kinds of issues? Well, the Republican Party says that uh, we should analyze our, all the hard data on climate change and it acknowledges the UN efforts as political. The UN is driving a lot of this to get all the nations to get on board with the climate change agenda and all that's involved in trying to do away with fossil fuels, etc. But uh, they will reject the agendas of the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. It supports the enactment of policies to increase domestic energy production so we're not dependent on foreign influence. The environment is too important to be left to radical environmentalists. Their approach is based on shoddy science. This is the Republican platform. Their approach is based on shoddy science, scare tactics, and centralized command and control regulation. So they're very suspicious, and rightfully so, of a lot of what's going on in the climate change. At least that's the Republican platform. The democratic platform is quite different. Climate change is a global emergency. They want to reverse all of Trump administration rollbacks on environmental protections. Believe we must embed environmental justice, economic justice, and climate justice at the heart of our policy and governing agenda. Democrats agree that the United States and the world must achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible and no later than 2050. So obviously, they're very much in favor of uh, believing in man-made, catastrophic climate change. And some are saying, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, you know, we got 12 years or we're going to kill ourselves because of all this. So they're very much into the hype, the scare tactics, which I think it is. Shoddy science, there's a lot of that in there. In my opinion, it's my opinion, 
And, uh, but the Democrat Party is in favor of, of all that and all the economic hardships that would come with trying to implement their policy. Well, uh, for those of y'all that were in our church earlier this year, Dr. Peter Littleback, who's the president of Westminster Theological Seminary, spoke at the Whitfield Society meeting and he spoke on climate change and a biblical perspective on man-made catastrophic climate change. And there are two sources you may want to jot down, and you can look these up and, and consider it on your own. Prager University on, on the climate change, Dr. Happer, who's written over 200 peer-reviewed articles, says that man-made global warming is not science, but science fiction. Also, Cornwall Alliance, Dr. Calvin Bisner, I think is how you pronounce it. And uh, all of these are saying there's a whole lot of politics involved in all this global warming scare. Uh, the, the underlying motivation is the control of humanity and ultimately one world government. And uh, obviously the cultural mandate says we don't want to abuse, abuse our environment. We don't want pollution. Air pollution, water, we don't want that. We're to take care of the earth as part of the cultural mandate. But that all this stuff about what's going on today is totally deceptive and what they're saying. And those are two good resources that Dr. Littleback recommends for those that want to go deeper. If you just look at the Scripture on this, you realize that God is in control and the idea that man somehow is going to destroy this earth is unbiblical. So we do know that in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and Adam brought a curse on himself and on his wife, also on the ground. So now the ground is growing thorns and thistles. That's why we have tornadoes. There's an earthquake. Romans 8 says the earth is now groaning right because of the curse. Uh, and it got so bad that, that the Lord, because of the curse of mankind, the wickedness upon man's heart was so universal because of man's depravity that God brought a worldwide flood and wiped out everybody but Noah's family, those eight. Wiped everybody out because of the, the sin and the wickedness. After that, God continually repeats over and over and over again that although there will be minor uh, upheavals in our climate, there will be tornadoes, there will be earthquakes, there will be hurricanes and all these other things. It's never going to be to the point of destroying the earth or destroying humanity. And God says it won't happen. So in Genesis 8.22, after the flood, God promises to Noah and He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cool and heat, Summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So the earth will be able to grow crops. There'll be rain. There'll be the changing of the seasons. So all this scary, climactic, destructive, catastrophic climate change, God says, no, there's going to be stability. Yeah, there's going to be ups and downs. But basically, there is stability. Look at Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In Genesis 9.15, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all, all flesh. 
Can the seas rise some? Yeah. But the idea that it's going to be a catastrophic destruction, God says it won't be. In Jeremiah 5.22, and all of this comes from Dr. Pete Littleback in his message. Jeremiah 5.22, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea. An eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Let us now fear the Lord our God who gives us rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Sounds like there's going to be stability, growing crops, living life. In Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David. This is interesting. My covenant may also then be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. In other words... If you can break my covenant for stability on the earth, for seasons of harvest, rain, all the things, so life can continue to to go on, stability so that you can increase and multiply on the face of the earth, and God promises stability so that increase on the face of the earth can occur. If you can break that, God says, then you can break my covenant to put David's son on his throne. In other words, this would break the whole messianic promise that God gave to David. This would say that the son of David will not be on his throne. And the last I checked, Christ is still on his throne in heaven. So that this promise, this covenant with the earth has not been broken. And if you can break the covenant with the earth, then you can break God's redemptive covenant of the Messiah and Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of David in heaven. And that's not going to happen. So biblically, you find just incredible stability of the climate and it's even tied to the coming of the Messiah and His reign on David's throne, which is going on now in heaven, according to Acts chapter 2. We know that Christ on His throne and Him all things hold together. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He's fulfilling that covenant that God made with the earth. We can uh, expect stability. And even though the creation now groans, there will never be a catastrophic destruction like that happened with Noah. God promises that there will be stability. So the earth will be preserved until it's replaced by the new heavens and the new earth and God's purpose will stand. Well, quickly moving on, how about religious freedom? The Republican Party says full religious freedom of all, uh, at all times everywhere. Full repeal of the Johnson Amendment, which basically was passed back in 1952, I think it was, to say that ministers from the pulpit could not endorse a candidate or a political party or anything like that. It was, it was wrong to pass that thing. They've never upheld it anyway, so, but uh, they're committed to repealing it. President Trump said that that's something he would try to get done. We pledge to defend the religious beliefs and rights of conscience of all Americans and to safeguard religious institutions against government control. We endorse the First Amendment, the Defense Act, 
and legislation that will bar discrimination against those who act on their beliefs regarding marriage. So, for example, if you're a, a, a wedding cake baker and a gay couple comes in and they want you to bake a cake for their gay wedding and you say, no, I'm sorry, I can't. It violates my religious convictions. You have every right to do it. Democrats want to take that away. The Republicans say, no, that's a religious conviction and that needs to be honored. Same thing with taking photographs at a gay marriage or whatever it is. Republicans want to preserve that freedom of conscience. Democrat Party says religious freedom is a core value and a core value of the Democratic Party, they say, will protect the rights of each American for the free exercise of his or her religion, they say, and will advocate for religious freedom throughout the world. Democrats recognize the paramount importance of maintaining the separation between church and state, and that's the caveat. That's the monkey thrown in, the monkey wrench thrown in the, the spokes of the tire. That separation between church and state enshrined in our Constitution is, is something that they're going to twist and turn to deny us our religious freedoms and liberties. Again, on the Republican side of the same issue, we strongly support the freedom of Americans to act in accordance with their religious beliefs, not only in their houses of worship, but also in their everyday lives. That includes at your business where you work. But the Democrat says we will fight to enact the Equality Act. What's the Equality Act? Well, it's a bill that would remove religious liberty protections and even force churches, if we hired someone, that we would have to consider gay people to to be on staff in a, in a church. That's the Equality Act. So where's the religious conscience? Where's the li- religious liberty there? So what they say on one hand, they turn around and deny on the other and they take it back. How about the closing of churches and synagogues during COVID? Now I can understand the health-related issues, but in certain areas they have overpressed that boundaries that seems like it's an attack on religious freedom. Biden will go after the pro-life Catholic nuns, the little sisters of the poor, for their refusal to pay for abortions forced on them by Obamacare. If he's elected, he's going to revisit that. Now, they won in court the last time, but Obama's going to bring it up again and try to take that away from them. Biden will also repeal the Religious Liberty and Restoration Act. So religious liberty is a big issue. Is it biblical? Certainly is. We're to pray and offer up our petitions and thanksgivings for all men, for kings and all in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's religious liberty and freedom. All quietness, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. So the government isn't coming down and forcing me to give up my convictions to accommodate the government. This is, this is praying for religious liberty, religious freedom. So biblically, the Republican Party says in their platform they'll preserve it. The Democrats say, no, we're going to whittle it away. Well, my goodness, how about the courts? Real quick, the Republican platform says, we support the appointment of judges who respect traditional family values and the sanctity of innocent human life seeks to enable courts to begin to reverse the long line of activist decisions, including Roe v. Wade, Obergefell, that's where uh, legalized gay marriage, and the Obama cases. So that's their platform for the moral issues that the courts 
They want to put judges who will defend these things on the courts. The Democrat Party will appoint U.S. Supreme Court justices and federal just judges who will respect and enforce foundational precedents, including Roe v. Wade. In other words, that will not change Roe v. Wade or, or Obergefell, I may be mispronouncing it, or all the Obama cases. Or the case that redefined the word sex in Title VII to include sexual orientation and gender identity. The Democrats don't want any of that stuff reversed. And in fact, if Biden wins the, wins the White House, more than likely, you'll see them pack the Supreme Court to get enough liberals in there to maintain that these laws do not get overturned. Biden sees the Supreme Court as a super legislator. That's not their job. That's the Congress's job is to legislate, to make laws. But they want to see it in the courts and that's how they gain so much influence when they can't persuade the people to enact laws. They have liberal judges that will pass it and make law themselves by some of their decisions. Biden says the Supreme Court for capital punishment electoral process and oftentimes Easton, on those I've heard that when the Democrats are in power and they put on put uh, add justices to the Supreme Court, their justices always vote liberal 100% of the time. Republicans are not as smart. When they put justices on the Supreme Court, it's about a 50-50. About half of them end up going liberal. Uh, so we don't do as good of a job. But are the courts important? Yes, because righteousness is important. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when wicked men rules, people groan. The minister of God is for, you, is for your good. And it brings wrath on those who practice evil. That's what the court should uphold. This is what government should be about. So it's quite an important issue. How about God and government? Well, the Republican mentions God 15 times in their platform. The Democrats mention God one time. Republicans say if God-given natural inalienable rights come to com conflict with government, court, or man, or human-granted rights, God-given natural inalienable rights always prevail. We support the public display of the Ten Commandments. Democrats are silent on the role of God and government, silent on the source of human rights. They celebrate the paramount importance of maintaining the separation between church and state enshrined in our Constitution, and they interpret that the way they want to and yet, as far as having God in government, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And you throw God out, you open up a Pandora's box of evil. What will the Democrats do if they get elected? They'll ban the electoral college. This is what they'll try to do, I think. Ban the right to work. Ban fossil fuels. Ban all cash bills so criminals can get out of jail so much easier. Ban fracking, legislate the Green New Deal, government-run health care for all, raise taxes, defund the police, stack the Supreme Court, add Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. estates so that now they'll have four more liberal senators and will probably never win the Senate back again. They'll implement globalist policies, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, probably. Well, real quick, I'm running out of time, but how about socialism? 
The Democrat Party, as most of us are aware of, have been influenced by some very powerful, outspoken socialists within their party, and they're swinging the whole party that way. Now, I've got Christian friends that have been Democrats for many, many years, but they're realizing that the, the Democratic Party has left them. And I think what you're saying is that uh, socialism is like a mousetrap because it works because a mouse doesn't understand why the cheese is free. And I think that's a beautiful description. Socialism wants to give away everything that's free. Free education, free health care, free this, free that. And people say, wow, that sounds great, it's free. And they go up and they start nibbling on the cheese. And then suddenly they don't realize, flap, that there are consequences. And the consequences for a nation that embraces socialism is incredibly destructive. For millennials in particular, the draw of socialism is this notion that things are free and that also socialism shows more compassion. And these are very powerful thoughts for millennials today. So though the idea is things are free and socialism is always promising everything's free, okay, they'll think, okay, some people will pay higher taxes, but think about all the things your higher taxes will get you. Free education, free health care, no more student loans, things like that. Sounds pretty good. But the problem is everybody's going to be taxed. They're going to raise taxes not only on individuals, but also on corporations. And corporations, guess who they're going to pass their tax liability on to you and me, the consumer. So everybody's going to pay taxes. They say the middle class ain't going to pay taxes. You watch. Because they're going to revoke Trump's tax break, and that was largely for the middle class. The middle class is going to be hit by this. So it's not free. Nothing's free. To accomplish this giving stuff away free, the government has to break about every law that God says is to be uh, followed by government. There will be injustice because the government will favor some more than others, and that's the nature of justice. Everybody gets treated equally. But under socialism, no, there's some people get better benefits. Some people are get more favors than others within the system, and that's injustice. There will be stealing as the government excessively taxes some, takes away more of what they own, which is unjust. It's not, that's not fair. That's unjust. Everyone should be treated equally under the law. That's justice according to the biblical standard. So so-called economic justice is really legalized theft. Democratic socialism is like a stage one cancer. It grows into a terminal and fatal disease of full-fledged communism. But the socialist utopia that they promise everybody, oh, it's going to be free and all your needs will be met, that is a mirage. It cannot begin to accomplish their goals of equality without government control of the economy, government control of education, government control of health care, government control of business. For, it, for everything to be free like they want to offer, they've got to control all of that and that has a devastating impact. It's not the way God designed government to function. Also, the compassion. A lot of people say, well, I'm, I like socialism because it's more compassionate. It helps more people. 
It's more about caring for one another. And on the surface, that sounds good. We as Christians should help the poor. We should care for those who are in need. That's, that is a biblical responsibility that we have as Christians. But that's not the government's responsibility. That is our responsibility. Now in the Old Testament, the, the rich landowner was not to glean the corners of his, of his property, but the poor had to get up and go to work to glean that for themselves. There weren't any freebies and handouts. They had to get up and go work to actually earn their, their, their food for the day. But the term compassion is very misleading. People say, well I, like, well, I like socialism because it shows compassion to everybody by giving them all this stuff. But if parents have that attitude toward your children, what will you turn your children into? Parents that spoil their children and give them everything they want free will end up spoiling them and they'll grow up expecting that everything be given to them. When government takes that approach in the name of compassion, they do a great disturb, disservice to our country. Yes, we're to help the truly needy, but this should come primarily from the private sector. Of course, our government is all out of I'll say it's all out of whack in that direction now. But when government does it, it quickly becomes wasteful. Socialism also is ultimately anti-God. It leads to totalitarianism when government takes the place of God. And the church is the enemy under socialism. They're not going to try to in any way befriend Christians or, or show any favor to Christianity. You can forget that. It's anti-God. And mob rule is a cheap tactic and strategy of, of socialism. So how are we doing in our country right now? Well, not good. The current 116th U.S. Congress, that's the one that's in session now, has 95 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus out of 425, 35 total members. 97 are progressives. They're liberals. They're basically socialists. It's co-chaired by Representatives uh, Rao uh, Grijalva and Keith Ellison. It's closely allied with the Democratic Socialists of America. There's 80 votes in Congress who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. And the Communist Party USA identifies the con Congressional Progressive Caucus members as its allies in Congress. So we're quickly heading down the road uh, to socialism. This is certainly not good. The socialists want to appeal to Sweden as their model. Sander, Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, they want to uh, cite Sweden as their model. But the Nordic nation nearly destroyed its economy when it actually briefly uh, did their foray into actual socialism back in the 1970s and 80s. And then in the 1990s, there was such a financial crisis in Sweden that saw the nation's GDP bottom out and unemployment spike. The government was forced to raise interest rates a staggering 500% in order to avoid the devaluation of their money due to socialism. And in the end, what saved Sweden from collapse were free market reforms such as deregulating the financial markets, replacing public monopolies with private competition, a rollback of tax rates, 
and eliminating the inheritance tax. So as they implemented free market policies, they started recovering from the socialism. What the socialists in America really should point to is Venezuela. Because Venezuela is a country that best represents what the socialist utopia is going to lead to. Venezuela, a nation rich with natural resources, now is full of poverty, hunger, and rebellion because of socialism. And socialism promises compassion and free stuff, but it delivers oppression. It's kind of a bait and switch. And young people today haven't witnessed this to see the evils of socialism, so they're easily caught up into it because they give free stuff and they show compassion. And that they don't see what the real end run is. The American Enterprise Institute points out that socialism does not work because it's not consistent with fundamental principles of human behavior. Because socialism destroys incentive. Why work harder when you're going to end up with the same stuff as somebody that doesn't work at all or is lazy on their job? Why work harder? Why be incentivized to, to excel when you're going to end up getting everything the same? It just doesn't work. And Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez Ocasio are simply repackaging a failed ideology and insisting that somehow they, and like all the other nations that have tried it before them, can make it work where every other nation has been destroyed by it. So that's socialism. Everything is free. Everything is compassionate. But it ends up destroying the nation in the end. So, in conclusion. There's only two major parties in our country right now. Maybe someday there will be more. But one of them has made it stand against Christian values. That's the Democratic Party. And I do not see how a Christian can support what the Democrat Party has become. It's anti-Christianity. It's anti-morality. It's anti-everything that we basically stand for. Now that's in light of what it's morphed into. And that certainly has uh, happened a lot more recently. You don't have to agree with our president on everything he does. You don't have to like everything that he says. I don't. Doesn't even mean you have to be a Republican. But we're coming down to vote between two men with a totally different political platforms behind them. The sad thing about it in America is that in uh, 2016 and 2018, 30 million, 30 million professing evangelicals did not vote. 30 million. And when evangelicals go out to vote, great things can happen. I won't take the time to give you some statistics on it. But uh, Christians should be uh, engaged. And you say, you know, ultimately, okay, should we be on the right or should we be on the left? Uh, there it is. Well, I think the Bible answers that question.
Now, obviously, when uh, Solomon wrote this, he didn't have the Democrats and the Republicans uh, in mind when he wrote it. But I don't know. I'll make an application for today. Uh, Certainly something to think about. Well, in wrapping this up, uh, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, uh, the, the result has already been fixed. I'm not talking about fixed because the Democrats are going to cheat so bad they're going to win it. I'm talking about that God has predestined already who the winner is. We're to cast our vote. We're to do what we can to be responsible as citizens of this country. But God's already determined uh, the outcome. And I think there's a lot of comfort in that. We are to love our neighbor. We are to do good to our fellow man. And one way we do that as Christians in America is to promote righteousness and good things in our culture, which blesses all people. That's what we as, as God's people should be about. We're to love our neighbor. We're to, to pray for those who persecute us. We're to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Do good to all men. Good laws are a blessing to all people. And that's why we should be engaged. Government is an arm of God's common grace. And as we as the salt of the earth, we should seek to, to promote that which holds back sin and rot of human depravity within our culture. But God is in control. So therefore, it is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. If Biden wins, well, that's probably what's going to happen. I think, honestly, whether Trump or Biden wins and all the other, the Senate, the House, all these things ultimately are determined by God and we can, again, find peace in that. So therefore, do not trust in princes in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. But rejoice that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. This is our rock. This is our foundation. This is what we'll rejoice in whether the socialists hijack our country or not. I've got my joy in Christ. And I can always know that my God is going to use whatever happens to build His church, to bless His church. And the church can thrive under any form of government. But again, our desire is to see what's done in heaven is done on earth. And to pray for God's blessing upon America. Well, as we close this service Apologize for going a little long, but uh, we want to focus our attention again upon the greatest source of our joy, the greatest blessing that we have is that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can serve the Lord and we can be a light in the midst of the darkness, whether our influence has any effect or not. We still have the joy of representing Jesus Christ in our country around the people that God has put into our life. So as we focus and draw ourselves back from all the chaos of the politics that we're in, we can draw ourselves back just to meditate upon the spiritual blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it's our joy to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus Christ endured on the cross to save His people from their sins. This is the Lord's Supper, not the Supper of Northwest Bible Church, so we invite any and all believers who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone to freely partake. To examine your hearts, the Lord has convicted you of any sin, to confess it, and then joyfully to take the symbols of His death, His body and His blood, sacrifice for us, and just think about the cost that He paid, the suffering, just the agony in showing how much He loved us, that He would endure that, the wrath of God for us, so that our hearts respond in praise and love and worship to Him. Because He gave His all for us. We should return that in our love and devotion to Him. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Remembering the cross and out of such love towards us, being willing to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and to follow Him. As we break the bread, we always use unleavened bread as a fitting symbol of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. The reason why He could die for us and bear our sins because He had no sin of His own. He was fully God and He was fully man. As man, He could represent us. As God, He could bear the full penalty of God's infinite wrath. And so we break the bread as an audible reminder of just the tearing of Christ's flesh as He was crucified and the nails were pounded in. I would ask you if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to reflect upon the fact that We have all sinned, including you. And we have broken the commandments of God. And one day there will be a judgment day and we will stand before the judge. And without Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must give an account. We must pay the debt that we owe for our sin. Christ offers you forgiveness. Come to Him now. Christ offers you salvation and everlasting life. Turn from your sin. Believe upon Him. Call out to Him. He's promised to save you. Come to Him now. Because this is a meal reserved for Christ and His people. So let the elements pass you by if you've not put your trust in Christ. And think about your relationship with the Lord and turn to Him. That's our heart's desire for you. The ushers at this time would come. We'll distribute the bread. You can partake whenever you're ready or at the end. And as the ushers come, I'll give them the trays. And then I will give thanks for the bread. And then we'll distribute it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are all sinners, Lord. We have broken Your laws, Lord. We have done things that we should not have done. 
we have violated your precepts in our thought life, our words, our actions, the motives of our heart, Lord. We are all stained with sin. And yet, Lord, in your incredible love, you have provided the one and only solution for our sin. You have sent your Son into this world to die in our place, to bear our sins and suffer the full cup of the wrath of God. And oh Lord, how we bless you, how we thank you. So Lord, draw our hearts to you as we celebrate your supper at this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.